and um, we will begin this morning. We are um, we're starting a new series this week. We're going back to Bible survey as we periodically do, surveying one Bible book at a time, and we come uh, to begin this week a Bible survey of Second Chronicles. So as we pray. I'm going to pray with my eyes open so I will see if any of you bolt for the door, okay? Just kidding. Let's ask the Lord to bless our time and um, give us wisdom as we go. Lord, we thank you for this day you've given us. We rejoice in another Lord's Day to come together, to receive truth from your word, to receive encouragement from one another. Lord, I pray that your spirit would convict us if necessary, that it would encourage us, that it would draw us um, to consider more carefully um, who you are and the works you've done in our lives and in the history of your people. We praise you, Lord, for your goodness to us and your grace revealed to us most of all in Christ. Lord, let us um, have our hearts um, drawn to him this morning in everything that we do. Lord, tune our affections to you most of all. I pray in these next couple of hours um, in Sunday school and in worship. In Jesus' name, amen. So there is a handout going around. If you haven't gotten it yet, raise your hand and someone will get it to you. Looks like Timothy's bringing them around. It is an action-packed handout. Um, Try not to get distracted by it too soon. We will kind of work our way through it um, one piece at a time. Not going to talk about every word. But uh, like I said, we're beginning Second Chronicles, and really this week, we're not diving in immediately this week into Second Chronicles 1-1, as it were, um, but I think it'd be helpful for us to take a step back and kind of look at contextually um, in several ways, give us an introduction uh, to Second Chronicles, because I don't think that it's perhaps everyone's favorite book. It might not be the most familiar book for all of us. Um, And so I just want to make sure we're we're kind of getting a broad context of what Chronicles is about, uh, why it exists, what it's for, before we just dive in next week, which we will next week, beginning with Solomon. Um, But uh, by way of illustration, um, not to uh, beat a dead horse, but... um, Some of you, no doubt, are familiar with the book of Esther, and let's just think very briefly about something that happened in Esther chapter 6. I know that Rod is having his quiet time in Esther this week, right? Um, Just kidding. But in Esther chapter 6, we find King Xerxes having a sleepless night. He can't sleep. And so what does he do? Well, he calls to his attendant, he calls to his page, to have the chronicles read to him. Now, let me just say immediately that the document that Xerxes wanted to have read to him was not our biblical book of Chronicles, but I think the illustration serves a purpose. Because Xerxes couldn't sleep that night. He was trying to find a way, I think, to go to sleep. And so what did he want to have done? He wanted to have some history, some historical record book, probably the Chronicles of the Kings of Persia, read to him that night. I think he was looking for a literary sleep aid, or perhaps a historical tranquilizer. So why do I start there? Well, I start there because I think that there could be maybe a comparison to be made in the way that we look at our biblical book of Chronicles. 
and that we might be tempted, and I'm thinking about myself here, we might be tempted to look at First and Second Chronicles as a biblical sedative or a canonical sleep aid. And that um, if we just think about certain parts of our Bibles in that way, I think we're going to miss out. So hold on to that thought. Let's go back to King Xerxes on a sleepless night. He's having these chronicles read to him, and you might know, well, what happens? Well, he realizes, based on the history that's read to him that night, that there's a particular situation that occurred in the kingdom under his reign. In a particular situation, really a particular man, Mordecai, something has not been done well for Mordecai. There's a situation that has not been dealt with, and he realizes it that night because the chronicles are read to him. And really, the rest of the book of Esther is the series of events that unfold all from that moment where Xerxes couldn't fall asleep, so he wanted the history read to him. And we see how, in God's providence, that there was something there that Xerxes needed to know. So again, why do I make that illustration? I just simply want to uh, perhaps suggest that... um, we could be tempted uh, to fall into this kind of cycle or pattern with certain parts of our Bible. And that certain parts, but particularly the back half of the Old Testament, it may seem unfamiliar to us at best, perhaps irrelevant at worst. And so we don't study it, we don't read them. And as a result of not studying and reading them well, they remain unfamiliar to us and perhaps irrelevant. So how do we break that cycle? Well, I'm not up to that task myself necessarily, but I think the word, the scripture is, and I think that Paul's word from Romans 15 verse 4 is instructive. Listen to what Paul said, Romans 15 4. He wrote this, for whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction, that through perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. I think Paul was looking back over those Old Testament writings and explaining to people in the New Testament era, you know, what are those old writings for? Well, what he hones in on is they were written for our instruction and for our hope. Now, I I don't think it's any coincidence that truly, as we're coming to 2 Chronicles, I think that the chronicler, that is the man that was writing these things down, really had those exact same things in mind. When he was sitting down to write this history of the nation of Israel, I think he had in mind those exact two things, instruction and hope. So as we begin this survey, understand that, yes, um, we are going to be moving through nearly 400 years of biblical history. Um, We're going to be covering dates and kings and battles and cities and facts and figures. But really, those are just the backdrop. This is important to understand that um, really what God has given us in the Chronicles, um, standing out in front of all of those dates and kings and battles and cities and facts and figures, standing out in front of all of that is instruction for us and hope for us. But before we get to dig into that, like I said, we have some introductory ground to cover. Admittedly, we know that Chronicles covers a period of time that we're not that familiar with, a different culture, a different place, different people. Um, 
And so I want to step back and kind of orient ourselves. I think it'll help us to uh, appreciate Chronicles if we do this. And so I want to orient us in three ways. And you don't have a handout that follows these three ways, um, but you have some other things that we will look at. So the three ways that I want to orient us would be canonically, historically, and then covenantally. Um, so canonically, historically, and covenantally. And then just as kind of an, an aside, because I don't think that we're really going to get there to talk about this, but the question of who was the chronicler, who was the guy that wrote these things down, well, this won't take very long because the answer is we don't know. I don't have to dwell on that. Um, there was scholarship in the past that was pretty certain that it was probably Ezra, but more recently, I think that there's more of a consensus that we really can't know that for sure. So just understand that when we talk about the chronicler, the guy writing this stuff down, we really don't know who it was, and I think that's okay. So with that said, um, how do we orient ourselves canonically? Well, your first handout, I think on the front, is a biblical bookshelf. And so when I say canonically, of course, we're talking about the canon of Scripture, those 66 books that are in our Bibles that were settled, settled upon probably by the second or third century A.D., is that right, Matt, as those that were authoritative Scripture. Um, and so what you see here on your bookshelf is these are all the books of the Old Testament. Uh, those standing vertically on the shelf are basically covering the history of the nation of Israel from creation, of course, Genesis, all the way through the return from the Babylonian exile. And that whole bit of history is covered from Genesis through Nehemiah. That's what's standing there on the bookshelf vertically. Um, and that really is the end of Old Testament history. Nehemiah records the last things historically that happened to God's people before those 400 years of silence came before Christ. So then understand that, that Genesis to Nehemiah is our kind of history, and then of the books that are floating around the outside, all of those fit within that history somewhere. Those can be placed in various places. Of course, Job is towards the beginning, and then of course we know that Malachi is near the end. So all of those other books, the prophecy, the Psalms, and so forth, those all fit somewhere within the history, and those lines are trying to point generally where those fit. Um, now, when it comes to Chronicles, which is our topic, uh, I've put them in two different places on this diagram, and you might wonder why. Uh, first of all, I put them kind of at the very end, dashed in after Nehemiah, standing there as history, because they are that. They are history, um, but that's not the only place where they fit in. I've also put them, I say I, this is a diagram I've taken from one of our resources. I didn't create this myself. Um, but th they also exist above Samuel and Kings. So why is that? Why is it that we could think of Chronicles in two different places? Well, we should understand, first of all, that Chronicles was written down very late. It was written down either in the time of Ezra and Nehemiah or even after that. If you look below the bottom of the page, uh, there's a short little timeline of major post-exilic events and you can see that Chronicles was compiled, and really the scholars don't really have a firm stance on when exactly. There's a broad range here. But they were probably compiled somewhere between 515 and 390 B.C. So that's relatively late. 
um, in the Old Testament era. The, the point being, this is important for us to know, because the things we're going to learn from Chronicles, it matters when these things were recorded. And they were recorded at the very end, looking back over the whole sweep of Old Testament history. And they also can exist there historically because the Hebrew Bible, that is the Bible that was used during the Old Testament era, that's where Chronicles were. Before the time of Christ, the last book in the Old Testament wasn't Malachi. It was Chronicles because the Hebrew Bible was arranged in three parts broadly. There was the law, there was the prophets, and then the writings. And Chronicles existed as the very last part of the writings. So that's why you see it there at the end of the history. But at the same time, uh, it also exists right there with Samuel and Kings. Um, and you might wonder, well, why is that? And the best way that I can describe it, I think, is that um, much of the information recorded in Samuel and much of the information recorded in Kings is recorded again in the Chronicles. You might say that 1 Chronicles is an overlay over 1 and 2 Samuel, and then 2 Chronicles is an overlay over 1 and 2 Kings. It wasn't until um, the Hebrew Bible was translated into Greek, the Septuagint, that Chronicles was placed where we have it today in our Bibles. So you can think of it as existing in both places, and that's okay. Um, but again, I think we might ask the question, well, if Chronicles is repeating a lot of information that we already had in Samuel and Kings, why is that? Why did the Holy Spirit see fit to give us a lot of this history, not once, but twice? Well, I think we can make a comparison with the Gospels in this regard. If you think about Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, here's four books in the New Testament that are recording much the same information, especially Matthew, Mark, and Luke, right? Those are the synoptics, those things that are seeing the same thing with the same eye. Um, and so in the New Testament, we have the life of Jesus recorded multiple times by multiple authors. Um, but at the same time, we know that Matthew, Mark, and Luke particularly, I think, were writing with different emphases in mind. They were recording the same historical data, but they had different themes that they, I think they really wanted to drive home. You may think about uh, Matthew in terms of focusing on Jesus' messiahship or kingship. You think about Mark, you think about servant themes, right? The suffering, the conquering, and the triumphant servant. And you think about Luke portraying Jesus as the divine savior. Now, why do I say that? I say that because I think that the chronicler is kind of, of course, this was long before the gospels were written, but the chronicler perhaps was setting the stage for what the gospel writers would do. And that, yes, he's recording much the same information that already existed in Samuel and Kings, but he has perhaps a different outlook. He wants to emphasize some things that the writer of Samuels and Kings perhaps did not emphasize. We'll come to those in a moment. We'll kind of see what those are. So, perhaps that helps to understand how Chronicles fits within our Bibles. I hope it does. Um, so if we're to think about the next uh, way to orient ourselves historically, um, well, I think it's very helpful to understand what's been happening in the history of God's people to understand Chronicles. Um, not only understand those things that have taken place 
based on what the chronicler is recording, but understand the things that are happening up to the point when the chronicler finally wrote these things down. Um, so if we were to just briefly, in 15 seconds or less, think about high watermarks of biblical history, what would those be? Those, of course, we start with creation, the flood, um, God's covenant with Abraham, the Exodus, God's covenant with Moses, the giving of the law. Then you have the wilderness wanderings, the period of the judges, and then eventually we come up to where the kingdom is established, and the first king, of course, is Saul. Um, after Saul, of course, comes David and then Solomon. So just very briefly, think about those kind of high watermarks of biblical history, and probably any one of us in the room could have kind of ticked those things off on our fingers. But once we get to Solomon, what happens after Solomon? Well, things get kind of weird, right? It's okay for us to, yeah, things do get weird. Um, I think that's what the second page of your handout, the timeline, will hopefully help us with. And this is really just to help you refer to as, this, as the series continues. Because like I said, there's a lot of names we're going to see, a lot of names we're not that familiar with. And frankly, it is confusing. Was it Rehoboam or Jeroboam or Jehoram or Jehoahaz? Which was it? Was it Ahaziah or Amaziah or Azariah or Hezekiah or Zedekiah? Which was it? It's hard to say. But there they are, at least chronologically, how these kings fall. Because I think, certainly for me, after Solomon, my kind of general knowledge of biblical history kind of falls apart. It's hard to keep track of all this. And I think partially that's because, it might be fair to say, that after Solomon, biblical history falls apart, literally. After Solomon, Rehoboam comes on the throne and the kingdom is divided, right? Northern kingdom, southern kingdom, Israel, Judah. That's what this shows on the timeline. So let's keep moving, kind of thinking about how this history plays out. Um, but actually, before I do that, let me mention something else. Um, after Solomon, all of these kings, one after the other, of course, two different kingdoms now, Israel and Judah, and it's generally all moving in a downhill direction. There are some high points, there are some bright spots, and I really plan to focus on those in the next six weeks. Um, but a lot of times it's disappointment, unfaithfulness, lack of repentance, so forth and so on. Um, related to that, something that I think is important for us to understand was an insight that I got from listening to Andy Newton's series on kings. Andy was a member here, he and his family at Calvary for several years. Now he's a pastor at another church, not in Fort Worth. Um, but he taught through the Bible survey of First and Second Kings, and he gave an insight that I think is very helpful for us, a little bit of Chronicles. And it's this. Um, Andy made much of the fact that when you look at these kings, you look at all these names on this list, the king really had one primary role. The king and Israel or Judah had one primary role, that is, if he was to be faithful, he was to first and foremost be a covenant keeper. Um, God, of course, is faithful to keep his covenants he's made with his people. But primarily, it was the king's job 
to be faithful in the same way as a covenant keeper. And particularly, the three major covenants we're going to talk about in a few minutes, the thing that these kings needed to do was to obey the law, that is the Mosaic covenant, fulfill the Davidic covenant, which is to remain on the throne within the house and line of David, and then thirdly, to bring in the blessing of Abraham. So this history that Kings and Chronicles presents to us is king after king after king after king failing at either one, two, or all three of those. And so I want you to have this question in your mind as we study Chronicles. Is that where is the king that can obey the law, fulfill the Davidic covenant, and bring in the blessing of Abraham? Where is this king? Was it Saul? No. It wasn't even David. It certainly wasn't Solomon. And as I said before, it just kind of gets worse and worse after that. Um, and as the nation goes, or I should say, as the king goes, so goes the nation. And so particularly as the kingdom kind of falls further and further into disobedience, um, farther and farther from being faithful to God, well, we know that God's judgment is will come. And we see that particularly in the way that he sends the prophets. God sends prophets. They're on the timeline in italics. God sends these men to call the nation back to repentance, to call kings in particular, specific men and the nation, back to faithfulness and repentance. Um, I find it interesting that, of course, there were already priests, and then there were kings, and then now God adds prophets into this mix. So we have multiple men and multiple offices over multiple centuries trying to lead and guide God's people in faithfulness and obedience. But it doesn't happen. They are unable to lead God's people to repentance and faithfulness, and so eventually judgment does come. First of all, it comes for the northern kingdom. I think the year was 721 B.C. when the Assyrians sent the northern kingdom away into captivity and exile. And then a little more than 100 years later, the same thing happens to the southern kingdom, to Judah. Babylon comes in, 605 B.C. And they send Judah into exile and captivity. And in some ways, this is even worse because Jerusalem is sacked, destroyed, and the temple itself is destroyed. And we should understand this is problematic for God's people. It should go without saying, but it needs to be said that this is problematic for God's people. Because after this, for more than a generation, for 70 years, God's chosen people, a people dearly loved, are living as exiles away from the promised land, living as aliens in a foreign pagan culture, seemingly cut off from the law, cut off from the kingdom, seemingly cut off from the covenants. Seemingly, I think, it might have seemed to them that God's promises had failed. Let that sink in for a moment. I think to understand Chronicles, we need to put ourselves in the place of these people living in the 6th and 7th century B.C., understand what they have gone through, 
and I'm sh- I, I think, I really think, and I've read this in the commentators as well, that they must have been thinking, have God's promises failed? And it could be that there are some of us in this room that have occasionally had that same question roll through our mind, relative to us. Have God's promises failed for us? If you have ever thought that before, then particularly I think that Second Chronicles can really bring hope for you because that's largely what it was intended to do for its original audience, to bring hope for a people who surely thought that God's promises had failed. Because think about this specifically. I think these are the questions that must have been going through Judah's mind um, as they're in the midst of the exile. I mean, how could they keep the Mosaic Covenant without the temple? How could they participate in the festivals and feasts if they couldn't go to Jerusalem? How could atonement for sin be carried out if there was no priesthood or temple? That's a problem. How could the Davidic covenant be fulfilled without a king on the throne? That's another problem. And how in the world could we bring in the blessing of Abraham when we're out of the promised land? It's just three big problems for God's people. Um, And I think if we fail to understand Chronicles, it's because we fail to see the importance of those questions. Um, I think it must have been very perplexing for a Jew living in the 6th century B.C. Um, But history continues. We know that God was still sovereignly working out his plan of redemption for his people. It may have been hard for them to understand that at the time. But of course, we know how the story continues on this side of history. Um, And in fact, God had already ordained through the prophets that the exile was only going to last a particular amount of time, 70 years. Jeremiah prophesied that. And sure enough, after the 70 years is complete, in an amazing twist of God's providence, the pagan king Cyrus, king of Persia, issues the decree. All right, Jews, you can go back. And I think that must have been a great blessing, certainly, for God's people to get to go back to God's promised land. But again, I think there still must have been questions because there was still no king. Um, Yes, they were able to rebuild the city, and rebuild some version of the temple, not as magnificent as it was under Solomon, but they got the temple back, the priesthood was back. They could at least now participate in festivals and sacrifices. Um, But at the same time, they were surrounded by this pluralistic pagan culture. They were still kind of under the thumb of the Persian kingdom. And of course, at the same time, they had these Samaritans setting up this rival cult on Mount Gerizim. So now that they're back in the promised land, I think these might have been the questions. Well, are we, are we really still God's people? Can we really keep the covenants correctly? Um, can we fulfill the Davidic covenant without a king? I think they might have looked back over their past and understood that things had been pretty rough. And I think they were probably uncertain about their future. And it is in this context, at this time, that the chronicler puts his pen to paper or his quill to scroll and begins to write down his history. Um, It's important to understand that Chronicles was written after all that had taken place. 
almost between 50 to 100 years after Cyrus had issued the decree for them to return. The chronicler begins to write. And again, as I said before, as he sits down to write, what does he know that Judah needs? Well, he knows that they need what Paul said he was going to write, instruction and hope, right? And I think this is fascinating. How does he begin to write his history? Well, we're not going to look at First Chronicles. That was the last go-round. But just think about this. How does he begin in First Chronicles? He begins with nine chapters of genealogy. And we look at those and our eyes glaze over. And I, I understand. But if our eyes glaze over, I think it's because we don't understand what the chronicler is doing. Because he's writing to a people that have been oppressed, repressed, and depressed for many years. And I think he's trying to prove the point to them that, yes, you are still God's chosen people. And he's proving it out from generation to generation, one after the other after the other, for nine chapters from Adam all the way to David, proving that, yes, you still are God's people. And it could be that at the same time, if a Judahite or Israelite is reading this genealogy, connecting the dots of how God has been faithful throughout all of history, they could have also been reading some of the prophets at the same time. They would have had Jeremiah. They would have had many others. Listen to what Jeremiah had written in Jeremiah 33, starting in verse 14. He says, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the good word which I have spoken concerning the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch of David to spring forth, and he shall execute justice and righteousness on the earth. In those days, Judah shall be saved, and Jerusalem shall dwell in safety, and this is the name of which she shall be called. The Lord is our righteousness. For thus says the Lord, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel. And the Levitical priest shall never lack a man before me to offer burnt offerings, to burn grain offerings, and to prepare sacrifices continually. So if they rightly understand what the chronicler is doing, and they rightly understand some of these very encouraging promises given in the prophets, I think that they might have begun to see that yes, there will still be a future for us as God's people, and there will be someday, not sure when, someday there will be a king to come in the future who will keep the Mosaic Covenant. He will fulfill the Davidic Covenant, and he will bring in the blessing of Abraham. And of course we know who that king is, right? It's Jesus Christ. And as an aside, I should check the time before I do an aside. Um, thinking back to the, to the gospel writers, particularly Matthew and Luke, when they began to write down their account of this king that has come, this Jesus, how did they begin to make their case? With a genealogy. I think it's interesting that much as the chronicler had done, making the case for the fact that there is still hope for you as God's people. Matthew and Luke, I think, were taking the same tactic, proving out generation to generation to generation, God's promises haven't changed. Here is the king 
that can keep the law, fulfill the Davidic covenant, and bring in the blessing of Abraham. So next time you read genealogy in Scripture, even that, I think, can bring instruction and hope to God's people. So, if this is what the chronicler is setting out to do, to bring instruction and hope, you might wonder, well, why in the world does he do it by writing down history? You know, why historical data? Why is that still the language he uses? Well, some commentators um, certainly admit, well, back up, all commentators admit that it is history. Some commentators describe Chronicles not strictly as such, but they say that really you can see Chronicles as a tract or a treatise or even a sermon. So that while we see lots of historical data, as I said before, there is a message behind that. And on the first handout, one of the commentators, Richard Pratt, has identified no fewer than 28 themes that he sees in Chronicles. And I was thrilled when I saw this because it meant that these lessons are going to be a cinch to write. I just need to have a 28-point lesson every week that practically write themselves. Um, not, not really. But um, all of these things are in Chronicles. And so you look at the things that are here, um, and it's not just about history. Perhaps that's the point that I'm belaboring. It's not just about history. So this is what the chronicler is doing. I want to hone in on one particular theme. It's kind of our last point of orientation, and that is the theme of covenant. I want to orient ourselves covenantally. I've alluded to it already, but look at the last handout where we see in these three columns the three major covenants of the Old Testament. Now, why do I want to talk about this? Well, don't worry. This, I'm not going to even begin to talk about every word on this page. This is really just for your future reference. Enjoy it, perhaps. Um, or, or file it away and don't look at it. I don't know. Um, but I think it's important to have kind of a working knowledge of these covenants because the chronicler refers to these repeatedly. And so it could be, well, I'm sure that there are biblical historians in this room that are much more educated than I am. So this could all be old hat. But um, nevertheless, what are, what are the kind of high points of these covenants that are going to help us as we study Chronicles? Um, first of all, let's just talk about the Abrahamic. I'll read those verses in tiny print at the top. Um, these are three verses in the book of Genesis. Um, simply talking about how this covenant was struck. And that day Jehovah made a covenant with Abram. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your seed after you. In your seed shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Now we know that. We know that's what the Abrahamic covenant is about. Um, but why is it important to the chronicler? Well, before I answer that question, let's back up a moment. When we see these words that God is using towards Abram, talking about that um, between me and you and your seed after you and in your seed shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Perhaps we might also think back to another verse in the book of Genesis very early on, even in the Garden of Eden, where God speaks to the serpent, right? Genesis 3.15. And he says to the serpent that the woman's seed will crush the head of the serpent, right? 
And I think we perhaps should look at the Abrahamic covenant as kind of narrowing the focus of that very early promise given in Genesis. That God had said in the garden that there was going to be the woman's seed, that is, someone born of a woman, a man, was going to eventually tread Satan underfoot. And then now, with Abram, God says, not only is he going to be a man, but he's going to come from a particular family, a particular line, a particular lineage coming from Abraham. He kind of hones in on this promise of who this seed is going to be. Now, for the chronicler, I think it's important to see that um, within the framework of this covenant, is the promise that we see in multiple places in scripture where God says to his people, I will be your God and you will be my people. Um, This is the idea, as it says there under heading 2A um, or 2.1, this is a theocratic society, a society in which God rules over his people. Yes, there's a king. There's always going to be a king as we look at these lessons in Chronicles. But the king is ruling under God's authority, ruling under God's rule. Since this is a society that's under God, that is to say that it is a society that is God's possession. These people, God's people, belong to God, and as such, they have an inheritance. And in this covenant, the inheritance is the promised land, first and foremost particular land for particular people where God promises that they will be fruitful, multiply, enjoy all the benefits of this land. So very briefly, that's a few words about the Abrahamic covenant. Let's think about the Mosaic. I'll read Exodus 19, 5 through 6. It says, if you will obey my voice indeed and keep my covenant, then you shall be mine own possession from among all the peoples, a kingdom of priests, and a holy nation. Now there's the word possession again. And in this case, the thing that God is narrowing it in a sense is he's clearly giving them how he wants them to live. He's giving them the law, right? That's what's happening in the Mosaic Covenant. Um, I want us to think about most of all this morning, the very top thing, letter A, the foundation of this covenant. Because this is where I think that a lot of the um, folks in Judah and the kings we're going to look at, where they kind of got off track. And I think it's also easy for us to get off track if we don't understand this um, in our own lives. So what is the foundation of the Mosaic Covenant? Well, it's a twofold foundation. First of all, it is God's redemptive acts, particularly his redemption of his people from slavery in Egypt. And then secondly, it's his sustaining and preserving acts. That is the way that God sustained and preserved his people in the wilderness. So you take those two foundations together, the fact that God has redeemed his people and God has preserved his people, you put those together, and in light of that, God's people should be motivated to obey, right? Um, And for us, just briefly by way of application, I think this should say something to us as Christians in this era about God's law. Um, And when I say God's law, let's just keep things simple and think Ten Commandments, okay? Um, We should understand 
that the law was not just given to us as just words on a page. Do this, do this, do this, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. Now, it's never less than that. And the law that God gives us, we should do those things he asks us to do, and we should not do those things he's asked us not to do. Certainly, we understand that keeping the law is in no way a ways of earning God's favor, earning his merit. But the law still exists as a rule of life for us. This is the way that God wants his people to live. But more importantly than that, behind God's law stands God's character. And so in this context, the fact that God is a redeeming and a sustaining God, Israel should understand that it's not just this list of rules, but it's revealing who God is because he has redeemed and sustained his people. And I think this goes for me. Perhaps none of you have felt this way before. But if we can be tempted to only see God's law as a list of rules, then I think that can easily open the door in our hearts to a subtle form of legalism. I've read a very, I think, astute definition recently of legalism is simply this, separating the law of God from the character of God. Separating the law of God from the character of God. See, this is, this is how God gave this covenant to his people, was not simply in rules, but in revealing who he was. He was their redeemer, he was their sustainer, and it was really out of his grace that he gave the law, and that it was his goodness to them that they should live this way would be better for them if they would live that way. Out of his grace, not as some sort of judge. So that's the foundation of the Mosaic Covenant, and I think that's useful for us in our own lives, I hope, um, is to understand that God's law flows out of God's character. And it's probably pretty obvious, particularly for this covenant, that this is a conditional covenant. Really, all three of these are. The other two might not be as obvious, but this one is very clear. Because God gave clear laws and said, if you obey these, I'll give you blessing. But if you don't obey these, then you'll receive what? Curses or judgment, right? And we're going to see that clearly in Second Chronicles. Um, so it's conditioned on obedience. Thirdly, let's look at the Davidic. I'll read Psalm 89, 3 through 4. Where it says this, I have made a covenant with my chosen. I have sworn to David my servant. Your seed will I establish forever and build up your throne to all generations. So with this covenant, another kind of aspect is added to what God is doing with his people. Now we have kingship. We have royalty. We have a kingdom. There wasn't a kingdom during the time of Moses. There wasn't a kingdom during the time of Abraham. But now with what God promises to David, there is. Not only a kingdom, but it is a perpetual or an eternal kingdom. It's promised to David and his heirs, first of all Solomon, and then those following after. Eventually, leading to Jesus Christ. And it should go without saying that the chronicler is particularly concerned with God's kingdom. As it plays itself out in Israel and Judah. As I said before, as goes the king, so goes the nation. We'll see that again and again. And an important part of this covenant is that 
bound up with the promise that God made to David was that one of David's heirs, that is Solomon, is going to build God's house. You're going to get to build the temple. Of course, David wanted to. He wasn't able to. It falls to Solomon to do. And this is important for the chronicler because it's very important for him that um, relative to the temple and the priesthood, that right forms of worship were followed. He's very focused on the way that Israel or Judah worships. And not just in the large public gathering when they come to the temple, but privately. And we'll see this also very clearly. That the chronicler is concerned not only with the large gathering of worship, but the kind of private worship in the king's particular heart. The heart of the individual. So the priority of worship as it's played out in this covenant. We should understand that. So if, if that is a covenantal orientation, we've looked at the history, we've looked at the, how it fits with the canon. I want us to finish with a psalm. So turn to Psalm 111, and we'll see how this relates. Psalm 111. One of my commentators pointed to this psalm as kind of an intersection of worship and history. And that seemed appropriate given our task in Chronicles. This is an intersection of worship and history. Because what the psalmist is doing is similar to the chronicler. He's looking back over the sweep of biblical history, the sweep of redemptive history. And of course, the psalm is not history proper. That's not its literary genre. It's poetry. Um, but I think we'll see that the psalmist has much the same view of history as the chronicler does. So I'll read Psalm 111. Praise the Lord. I will give thanks to the Lord with all of my heart. In the company of the upright and in the assembly. Great are the works of the Lord. They are studied by all who delight in them. Splendid and majestic is his work. And his righteousness endures forever. He has made his wonders to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and compassionate. He has given food to those who fear him. He will remember his covenant forever. He has made known to his people the power of his works in giving them the heritage of the nations. The works of his hands are truth and justice. All of his precepts are sure. They're upheld forever and ever. They are performed in truth and uprightness. He has sent redemption to his people. He has ordained his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. A good understanding have all those who do his commandments. His praise endures forever. So how will this help us at kind of our starting point for Second Chronicles? Well, as I said... The psalmist is looking back over the things that God has done in the past. He's talking about the works of the Lord. Verse 2, great are the works of the Lord. They are studied. You may have a footnote that could say sought out. They are sought out by all who delight in them. Did you know that one of the ways that we can find ourselves satisfied or delighted in God is by delighting in the works he has done in the past. Um, to study his works, the things that he has done in the past. 
course, everything in some sense is God's work. He brings everything about according to his sovereignty and his providence. Um, And I think what the psalmist has in mind particularly is the works of God relative to God's people. God's works done in history on behalf of God's people. Let's just briefly notice the way that he describes God's works in the past. Verse 3, he focuses on his majesty and his righteousness. Verse 4, his grace and compassion. Verse 5, his provision and his covenant keeping. Verse 6, God's power. Verse 7, his truth and uprightness and justice. And verse 9, his redemption and covenant keeping. Now notice that while he's looking back over history, he's not really relishing in historical data. He's relishing God's character, right? And I I want us to begin to see history that way. Yes, we're going to see data, we're going to see works, we're going to see things that happen in history. We've got to look beyond that to see what this reveals about God. It reveals all of these things for the psalmist. So as we look at Chronicles, I think we're going to see history much the same way that the psalmist sees history here. Um, I think that we're going to see a lot regarding God's righteousness and his grace and his provision, his power, his truth, his redemption, his covenant keeping. As we study and look at the works of the Lord. Notice how the psalm begins and ends. He first says, praise the Lord. And at the very end, he says, his praise endures forever. This might also go without saying. Um, But when we look back at what God has done in the past, particularly for us, we look at God's works done in our lives, his redemption, our redemption in Christ, the way he sustained us and led us, I think it should be only natural for us to respond in praise and worship, right? perhaps can be easy for us. But our task over the next six weeks will be to look back at the things that God has done for others, people many, many years ago, and see what God has done for them. And that should evoke within us the same response, is to praise the Lord for what he's done in their lives as much as he's done for us. And one final word, I haven't said anything about the first half of verse 10. This almost seems like a non sequitur, like it doesn't follow what's come before. He says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. But good understanding have all those who do his commandments. Now, it might seem weird that we've been seeing praise and praise and praise for God's character, and then we have this wisdom statement. It's a statement that we see elsewhere in Scripture, right? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. How does this fit in? Well... Perhaps it fits like this. Um, Not only is God praiseworthy for the works that he's done in the past, but God is also worthy of our obedience because of what he's done in the past and what he's done for us. Remember the implication or the application of what the foundation of the Mosaic Covenant was. It was the fact that God was was a redeeming and sustaining God. In light of that, Israel should have been eager to obey. And in the same way for us, I think that the psalmist is calling for the same response. That when you look at what God has done in the past, he's worthy of praise. 
is also worthy of obedience. All those who do his commandments, who have a reverent fear for the Lord, not only will we praise him, but will also become wise. So in the end, I think that is what I hope to see, I hope to bring forth from Second Chronicles, not just historical data, facts, and figures, but to understand that God is worthy of praise for what he's done and that he's worthy of obedience for who he is, not just simply obeying rules and regulations, but to humbly submit ourselves to him who is a gracious, redeeming, and sustaining God. Why don't we close with prayer? Lord, you are um, gracious in our lives every day. Um, Help me to remember that today. As we sing in a few moments, to consider who you are. Consider your goodness. Thank you for um, the church, this local body of believers. I pray that each of us would consider your goodness to us in the past, even the recent past, even this week. And Lord, let that be our motivation to praise you and to also live um, obediently in lives um, of holiness, understanding that um, it all comes from your goodness and your grace. Lord, go with us now, I pray for um, Dan as he brings a message. Let, Lord, let our hearts um, be attentive to that um, an act of worship as well. I pray in Jesus' name.